You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 4, the backstory. We are now beginning one of the best-loved short stories in the Old Testament and one of the greatest examples of God's providence. It has tragedy, suspense, intrigue, betrayal, love, and life-and-death consequences on a global scale. Yet it concerns the lives of one family in two countries who will come to influence and bless the whole world. While we enjoy reading the narrative, we must never forget that this is a real account of real events. While they were living it, they had no idea it would be recorded in Scripture and told and retold throughout the centuries. For those involved, it was a real-life crisis. We mustn't detach from the story and immediately jump to the application. I read about some missionary Bible translators who were at this point in Scripture. The tribespeople would wait outside the window for the next page of the story to be translated. It was captivating and like a daytime serial to them. I love this story so much I wrote it in novel form, telling the story from the viewpoint of Joseph, Judah and Jacob. I loved doing the research, which was listening to every sermon I could find on this portion of scripture and learning about ancient Egypt. That book isn't published yet, but hopefully one day. It's called Intended for Good by P.H. Thompson. My first novel is published, though. It's called Beniah, Mighty Man of God, and that's your commercial for the day. So Jacob is back in the land of Canaan after 20 years in Syria and about 11 years in Succoth and Shechem and Bethel. Verse 14 tells us they were living in Hebron at the time. The rest of the book will focus on this one family, the 12 sons of Israel. When reading scripture, you must understand which meaning is applied to the word Israel. Here in Genesis, Israel is the person Jacob. Later on, it's the united country, in the time of the judges and under King Saul, David, and Solomon. Later still, throughout most of the Old Testament, it's the northern part of the divided kingdom. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south, are called Judah. In New Testament times, the area known as Israel was a region called Palestine, under the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire. By the way, Palestine was a derogatory name put on the inhabitants of the region by the Romans, as if they were Philistines. Finally, it refers to the whole of believers in all nations and at all times. The Apostle Paul calls the church the Israel of God. The previous chapter which recorded the prosperity of Esau's family is contrasted with verse 1 of this chapter, which notes the relative obscurity of Jacob's family. Just as Israel had as many nuanced meanings in Scripture, so does Edom. It first referred to Esau himself, then to his descendants and the territory occupied by them, and then to the nation of Edom. So no event happens in a vacuum. The brothers didn't wake up one day planning to kill or even sell Joseph. These feelings of animosity were growing steadily. And the underlying reason for the strife in this family stemmed from polygamy. Jacob had two wives and two concubines, through whom they had these twelve sons and at least one daughter. 
Another complicating factor for which Jacob himself must take some responsibility is his overt favoritism, first of Rachel as his favorite wife, then of her sons as his preferred sons. At this point, Benjamin is only about four years old, so Jacob's attention and affection fall on Joseph. Added to this mix is Jacob's anger at Reuben for having slept with his concubine Bilhah, that's recorded in Genesis 35, and therefore Reuben's loss of status as firstborn, and the violent response of Levi and Simeon following the rape of Dinah in Genesis 34. One application of this story is that God can use even a dysfunctional family like this to serve his purposes. As the Puritans used to say, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. So Joseph, who is now 17 years old, because he was six when they left Syria, was tending the flocks with his brothers. They were all shepherds, and he was learning the family business. Although Joseph was the favorite son, he was not allowed to be idle. Matthew Henry says, Those who are trained up to do nothing are likely to be good for nothing. But for whatever reason, he brought their father a bad report about them. We can assume it was true because of his character and theirs, but whether it was kind or wise of him to do it is a matter of debate. To his brothers, this bad report is strike one. We're told plainly, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. So Jacob was over 90 when Joseph was born. He demonstrated this preference by gifting him with an ornate robe, possibly even making a great show of it in front of the others. This is described as a robe, a coat, or a tunic. Some speculate as to what it looked like. Some imagine it as a multicolored coat, others as an elaborately embroidered full-length coat. We're not told any more than that it was elaborate. It would have set him apart and may have even given the impression that he had achieved the status and favor of firstborn. Such a coat would normally be given to the one the father deemed to be the future leader of the household. Of course, this was meant with envy on the part of the other brothers. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. They felt unloved compared to Joseph, and although their anger was really at Jacob, they directed it to Joseph instead, and every time they saw him wear that coat, the symbol of their father's love and favor, their animosity turned to hatred. Imagine, they hated him because their father loved him. They couldn't even be civil to him. He couldn't have been blind to their feelings. The coat was strike two. Verses 5 and to 11. Joseph dreams of greatness. Joseph is given two dreams. During this time in redemptive history, this was one of the ways God communicated to his people. The fact that it was repeated would have established it in their minds as settled and sure. Joseph readily shares these dreams with his family. Was he trying to make sense of them? Was he proud of what they obviously meant? Or was he instigating even more hatred from his brothers? Even if that wasn't his intent, that was the result. Like idealistic youth, he dreamed of prosperity, 
but not of abuse, slavery, or imprisonment. Joseph described the first dream like this. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. The meaning was self-evident. Now not only was he favored, but he expected to rule over them too. They confronted him immediately. Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? He must have said yes, because we're told they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Probably the next day or soon after, he had another dream and felt obliged to share it as well. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He told it first to his brothers and again to them with their father present. Because he saw the response of his other sons, Jacob openly rebuked Joseph, saying, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? This led to more jealousy on the part of his brothers, but Jacob kept it in mind, no doubt wondering why his son should have been given such a dream twice. But to the brothers, these dreams were strike three. They went from lack of civility to envy, jealousy, and hatred of their own brother. Verses 12 to 17, Searching for His Brothers Later on, his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, where they used to live. This was 50 miles north of Hebron. Israel calls Joseph to him and sends Joseph to check on them. He wants Joseph to report back to him. Whether he was suspicious of them because of Joseph's previous report or because they were so far away, we're not told. But Joseph obeys right away. They said their goodbyes, not knowing that it would be over 20 years before they would see each other again. We don't know when our goodbye will be our last, so we should always part on good terms. Joseph leaves Hebron and arrives in Shechem, although he can't locate his brothers at first. At this point, he could have returned home, since he had made an, an effort to find them, but he fulfills both the spirit and the letter of his father's command. A man finds him wandering in the field and asks what he's looking for. He says he's searching for his brothers and wonders if he knows where they could be. He is told the man overheard them planning to move on from there to Dothan, which was another 15 miles north of Shechem. Remember, Joseph is walking all this way, so it would have taken him some time. But finally he arrives in Dothan and sees them in the distance. Although the brothers made this decision to change locations on their own as free moral agents, even this was part of God's plan, so that they'd be in Dothan, which was along the main trade route for merchants going to Egypt. This way they'd be in the right place at the wrong time. Verses 18 to 24, Abuse and Scorn Joseph is approaching his brothers quite innocently, perhaps naively. But from their point of view, they see their little brother coming to spy on them, having traveled quite a distance to do so. And worse, he dared to wear that special coat to flaunt his superior relationship with their father. When they see him in the distance, they plan for murder and a cover-up. So this was a premeditated conspiracy. They thought if they killed the dreamer, his dreams couldn't be fulfilled. They say, here comes that dreamer. 
they say to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the, these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. They hated the obvious meaning of his dreams so much that they sought to prevent it by their crime and ended up fulfilling it instead. They already have a plausible story in mind to tell their father to explain his disappearance. They would not have likely acted on their feelings if they were back home near their father, but since they were far away, they felt they could get away with it. It's a bit like the vacation or spring break mentality. They think no one will know, like the saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Wishful thinking, but untrue, because God always knows. Then we see Joseph has an unlikely ally, Reuben. As firstborn, he had the most to lose because of his father's favoritism of Joseph. But because he had fallen out of his father's favor by his own sinful actions, he may have been trying to find a way back into his father's goodwill. He is shocked that they are actually planning to kill Joseph, so he tries to rescue him. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. He hopes to satisfy their bloodlust by abusing Joseph indirectly, suggesting the pit in the wilderness will do the job for them. You can see his fear on Joseph's behalf. Let's not take his life, don't shed any blood, and don't lay a hand on him. Then the narrator, Moses, tells us that Reuben's intention was to rescue Joseph from them and return him to his father. So Joseph arrives to a violent reception. They strip him of the ornate robe and throw him unceremoniously into the cistern that Reuben had pointed out. It was a dry, abandoned well with no water in it. So while Joseph had no fear of drowning, he would have been hurt by the fall, and if left there, would have died of hunger and thirst. When we were children, we may not have fully appreciated the horror of this story, but the word stripped pictures the skinning of an animal, and the term for throwing him into the cistern was like discarding a dead body, and this was a violent attack. Verses 25 to 28, Joseph sold by his brothers. Sadly, not only are Joseph's brothers violent towards him, they are callous too. While Joseph is crying out to them from the pit, they sit down to eat their lunch. We know they can hear him because they'll later recall this moment. Genesis 42:21 says, They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. And that's why this distress has come on us. At this point, Reuben leaves although we're not told why, but it was providential that Joseph's one advocate would not be there at that particular moment. Perhaps he had to retrieve a straying sheep. Whatever the reason, while he is gone, the others happen to see a caravan of Ishmaelites on camels passing by, coming from Gilead, which was east of the Jordan. They speak with them and find that they are on their way down to Egypt to trade their spices balm and myrrh. So this was the trade route. Elsewhere they are referred to as Midianites. So the descendants of Abraham's son Ishmael and his children through Keturah had at this point intermarried so much that the two terms 
Ishmaelites and Midianites were synonymous. Then Judah speaks up and suggests a better plan, one that will get rid of Joseph and give them a profit as well. What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Suddenly murder itself isn't enough. They might as well get something more out of it. You can almost hear his sarcasm as he refers to Joseph as their brother, their own flesh and blood. They may have felt it was less their fault if Joseph died at someone else's hands. This kind of criminal behavior would later be prohibited by the Mosaic Law. It says, if someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite or tr and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. So even though it wasn't forbidden at this point, they knew in their consciences that this was wrong. So all the brothers except Reuben agree to the plan. So they liberate Joseph out of the cistern only to sell him into slavery. So he is freed to be sold. They sold him for 20 shekels of silver. This was the average price of a slave during the second millennium BC. It is estimated this occurred around the year 1897 BC. During Stephen's testimony, before he is martyred in the book of Acts, he comments on this event. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him. God restrained their sin by mitigating their murderous plans to a lesser evil, which would accomplish his purposes. Verses 29 to 31, Reuben's response. Reuben returned from wherever he had gone and walked over to check on Joseph in the pit. When he saw that Joseph wasn't there, he tore his clothes in distress. He confronted his brothers, whom he knew were responsible. He said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? His grief reveals how much he had wanted to rescue Joseph. He knew that as the eldest, he would have to tell his father the bad news. He had been hoping to return Joseph to him safely so as to ingratiate himself to Jacob, but now he'd have to break his heart. Although he was absent at the time, he joined in the cover-up. The brothers convince him that they all have to stick to the same story, so they rehearse what to do and how to tell their father. They plan to present the evidence and let him draw his own conclusions. This way they won't have to lie outright. They still had Joseph's robe, which they had stripped off him earlier. So they slaughtered one of their goats and soaked the robe in the blood. Verses 32 to 35, the deceiver is deceived. So not only do children look like their parents, they often resemble them in character traits, both good and bad. Jacob was the deceiver of his father Isaac. But then he knew what it felt like to be deceived when he worked for his father-in-law Laban. But now he would be deceived again by his own sons. And in a similar way, since he used Esau's coat and the goat hair on his arms and neck to deceive his father, now Joseph's coat and the blood of a goat was used to make him come to a wrong conclusion. So the deceiver is deceived again. Since punishment is sometimes a long time in coming. They arrive with the ornate robe dipped in blood, 
All they say is, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Surely, uh, Joseph has been torn to pieces. He drew the only possible conclusion based on the evidence presented to him. If he would have examined the coat, he may have wondered why there were no tears in it, or flesh, or a sign of the clothes he wore underneath it. How is it that it was soaked in blood, almost as if he wasn't wearing it at the time? But his grief overwhelmed him so much that he didn't investigate. He grieved in the customary way. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Here the reference to daughters, plural, could mean that there were more daughters than Dinah, just not named in scripture, or it could mean his daughters-in-law. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. And this is the first mention in scripture of the grave or Sheol, the place of the dead. Earlier, a grave referred only to a burial plot. Here it refers to either the body in decaying form or the soul in its conscious afterlife. He was so distraught he couldn't imagine ever getting over this grief. Any parent can imagine such horror to have a child predecease them. Great love leads to great grief. But while he did not know it, Joseph's adventure was just beginning because God was sovereignly using even this terrible crime for their good. When all seems dark, we may be tempted to despair, but we don't see the whole picture as God does. We may be discouraged, but we should never despair. Consider the aspects of this crime, how one sin leads to another. The brothers first hated Joseph in their hearts. They conspired to murder him. They planned their cover story. They treated him cruelly and violently. They callously ate while he cried out for mercy. They freed him only to sell him into a life of slavery. They profited from the sale. They felt no remorse. They covered it up by tampering with the evidence. And they cruelly showed it to their father and let him draw his own conclusions. And then they made a pretense of comforting their father in his grief. Jeremiah 17.9 is right. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Yet the answer is in the next verse. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. So as the story progresses, we'll see this played out. The chapter ends with Joseph in Egypt, sold by the Midianites to a man named Potiphar, who is one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This probably refers to being head of the king's whole bodyguard, a position of high rank. His name Potiphar means one who was placed on earth by Ra, which was the Egyptian sun god. He is pictured as a man with the head of a falcon and a sun above his head, which is encased in a cobra. He was identified primarily with the noon sun but was believed to rule in all parts of the created world. We see all aspects of this event under God's control, that they would be along the trade route at that time, 
and that Joseph would be purchased by a prominent servant of Pharaoh rather than ending up in a field or a construction project. Yet the brothers are still accountable for their sin. A word about the sovereignty of God. We'll look at the tension between God's plan and a person's free will in chapter 45, but for now, realize that the brothers are not acting as if they are puppets on a string. If you were to ask them in that moment, do you want to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt, they would say, more than anything. Every sin is a want to sin. Just as Pilate would sentence Jesus to be crucified because he wanted to keep his job more than he wanted to release him. Later on, we'll see that both things are true. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility have been described as two railroad tracks. When you're standing between them, you see two of them. But as you look ahead, they seem to converge into one. And these two truths meet at the throne of God. But God is sovereignly in control of every event that happens, even our sinful actions, to bring about his good purposes for his glory and our good. So although it seems that the brothers got what they wanted, which was to be rid of Joseph, and the Midianites got what they wanted, to have a new merchandise to sell, and Potiphar got what he wanted, a new servant, yet all these will work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. Sharon James says, Cain murdered his brother Abel. Ishmael taunted Isaac. Esau hated Jacob and planned to kill him. But Cain, Ishmael, and Esau were not of the chosen line. Jacob's sons were within God's line of purpose. This is a terrible picture of hatred within the people of God. So Moses took only three chapters to describe the creation and the fall. He took 11 chapters to introduce Abraham and his family. He used only one to represent Judah, and that was a rather unflattering picture. But the narrative of Joseph takes up 13 chapters, one-third of the book, even though the Messiah would come through Judah rather than Joseph. Why would that be the case? Perhaps when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and he rebuked the unbelief of the disciples by going through the scriptures to tell them about himself, he referred to Joseph, who was the first deliverer of the children of Israel. Just as Joseph suffered before his exaltation, so Jesus had to suffer first. They should have known these things if they had understood the scriptures. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Joseph's life was a preview of the work of Christ. This account is not in scripture merely for moral lessons about honesty, hard work, and sexual integrity, but as a grand object lesson and type of Christ. Scarlet threads. So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or an application to the gospel do we find in this chapter? Because there are so many aspects of the life of Joseph that foreshadow the life of Jesus as a type or scarlet thread, I'll point them out as we go. 
So in this chapter, we see that both Joseph and Jesus had an exceptional birth. Joseph was born to Jacob when he was old, like a root out of dry ground, and the family was living in obscurity compared to Esau's descendants. Jesus was born of obscurity, like a root out of dry ground. They both foresaw their exalted position. The first dream related to exaltation on earth, the second in heaven. Jesus' dominion will be over heaven and earth. His brothers rejected his claim to preeminence. Joseph and Jesus were both beloved of their father. They were shepherds of their father's sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. He was given a special robe that represented who he was. Jesus was given a purple robe to show he was the king of Israel. He brought back a bad report of his brothers. Jesus testified that people hated him. Both were sent on a mission by their father to their brothers. Both willingly obeyed their father. Both left their father's home of comfort. Joseph sought and found his brothers. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Joseph was thought to be a dreamer. Jesus was thought to be mad by his brothers. They thought they could prevent his exaltation by killing him, but it would be the means of his exaltation. Both Joseph and Jesus were envied, hated by their brothers, rejected, and condemned to die. Envy is a feeling of discontentment or resentment aroused by someone else's possessions or attributes. King Saul would later be envious of David's military victories and the praise they garnered. If we are truly loving, we will not envy the accomplishments of others, but rejoice with them. Joseph's brothers hated him. Jesus was hated by his half-brothers and by his brethren, the Jews. Hatred is as bad as murder because hatred is murder in seed form in our hearts. 1 John 3.15 says, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 5.21. We are not to hate others. Others plotted to harm them. Both had their robes taken from them. Joseph was thrown into a pit. Jesus would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Joseph cried out in the midst of his sufferings. Jesus was in agony and cried out to him who was able to save him from death, but he was not saved. Judah wanted to profit from his death. Judas, the Greek version of the Hebrew name Judah, wanted to profit from Jesus' death. One brother didn't want to see him harmed, but could do nothing to stop it. Some Jews, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, didn't want to see Jesus harmed, but could do nothing to stop it. Reuben thought to satisfy their bloodlust by throwing Joseph into the pit instead of killing him. Pilate had Jesus scourged to satisfy the crowd, even though he knew Jesus was innocent, but it was not enough. They cried for his death. Joseph was raised from the pit. Jesus was raised from the grave. Both were handed over to Gentiles. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave who was killed. His brother looked for Joseph in the pit but couldn't find him. His friends looked for him in his grave but couldn't find him. It was empty. 
Joseph's empty coat given as proof he was uh, no longer there. Jesus' empty grave clothes were given as proof that he was no longer there. Joseph's brothers covered their sin of selling him by the blood of a substitute to cover their guilt. Jesus, like the Passover lamb, died as a substitute to cover the sins of his people. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Joseph was presumed dead. Jesus really did die. News of his death caused great grief to those who loved him. He was taken to Egypt for his survival. Jesus' parable of the tenants echoed this story and referred to himself. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Imagine, these are the similarities between Joseph and Jesus in just one chapter. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Genesis chapter 38. May God bless the study of his word.